Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back in God's house together this morning. Uh, before we jump into our sermon, I wanted to just uh, go back over a few uh, announcements that we made. Uh, hopefully, uh, you were able, well, if you're guys in the room, hopefully you were able to be with, at the men's fellowship yesterday morning. I was not able to be there, but I heard it was a blessing. Uh, for me, men's fellowship is an opportunity for us to get together, to sharpen one another. Same thing with the women's fellowship. Uh, so anytime those things are going to happen, I just want to encourage you to mark your calendar and be there because anytime we get to come together and have real, honest, helpful conversation, I do believe it not only strengthens our church, but it strengthens our marriages, it strengthens everyone's walk with Christ, and everyone can be a blessing in those times because we have an opportunity to share all things in common. Amen? Amen. Also, too, uh, we have been experiencing, in my opinion, some great uh, times on Wednesday night. Uh, I have been uh, blessed by the opportunity to get to know some more of our folks, uh, to be able to teach God's Word a little bit more deeply and a little bit more systematically on Wednesday night. And I want to just let everybody know every second Wednesday of the month will serve as a potluck um, dinner for the church. So 6.15 every second Wednesday. Usually we start at 6.45, but every second Wednesday we will start at 6.15 and the church uh, will provide the meat and then we're going to ask you to bring a side. Uh, this will give folks in the uh, congregation an opportunity to uh, work on your special dish once again. As we all know, I have a signature dish that the church requests, but I try not to bring it every time because I don't want you guys to get jealous. <laughs> True story. This morning, we want to continue our series uh, that I've called DNA. Uh, over the last few Sundays, we have been uh, systematically walking through uh, a series that is allowing us to go deeper into our mission statement. Um, if you look uh, closely at the screens, uh, our mission statement is very simple. We exist to celebrate the gospel through worship and prayer, to proclaim the gospel through expository preaching and discipleship, and we want to live out the gospel through fellowship and ministry. We want to proclaim something, we want to celebrate something, and we want to live out something, and that something is the gospel message. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the reality that God has exchanged our sin for his righteousness. It is the message of hope that Christ uh, took our place on the cross, a place that we deserve that he did not deserve, so that we could one day take a place in heaven, a place that we do not deserve. I've often said that usually uh, the DNA of a church uh, usually aligns with the passions of the pastor. If the pastor is passionate about worship, then the church is a worship church. If the pastor is passionate about doctrine, it's a doctrinal heavy church. If the pastor is passionate about uh, outreach, usually uh, the church follows or aligns itself with the, pastor, with the passions of the pastor. But I really do believe that every healthy church, and that's what we want to be, we want to be a healthy church body. Every healthy church, in my opinion, is a, is a balanced church. We got to understand that the passions that we have must be subordinate to the passion that God has revealed in his word. 
We've got to get to a place in our lives where we are uh, passionate about things that God is passionate about. Uh, anybody who's married or has ever dated understands that when you're in a relationship, there are some things that the other person is going to be way more passionate uh, about than you are. My wife, God bless her, is way more passionate about fashion and hair than I ever will be. <laughs> but over the years, I've had to learn how to connect with her based upon what she is passionate about. My wife yesterday uh, came to the UGA football game. She could care less about UGA football. I had to, I had to shame her into coming to the game. <laughs> but over the years, she has, shame on her, she actually left at the second quarter. And if you left at the second quarter yesterday, shame on you. <laughs> But, but over time, we have, we've gotten to a place to where we are passionate about what the other person is passionate about. And, and I use it as an illustration because as, as a body, as a, as, a, as a church family, we've got to understand that there are certain things that we need to be passionate about because God is passionate about it. It doesn't matter what you think or how you feel or what your preference is. If God says something is important, then you and I need to make that thing a priority and important in our lives. So in our first two sermons, uh, we talked about the first uh, section of the mission statement. We celebrate the gospel through worship and prayer. Uh, we concluded that worship is simply a valuing or treasuring of God above all things. When you worship something, when you value it and you treasure it. When we worship, we are valuing and treasuring something. Now, biblical worship is valuing and treasuring God above all things. Secondly, we spoke about the privilege that we have to pray. When we pray, it is not us giving our list of demands to God. But when we pray, we are humbly approaching the Lord. We are honestly making requests, and we are hopeful that the Lord is going to answer our requests, not based upon what we think is best, but we are hopeful that God's plan for us is better than our plan for ourselves. We trust that what God has for us is so much better than what we have for ourselves. This morning, we want to go to the second stanza of the mission statement, and we want to focus on how we are called to proclaim the gospel through expository preaching. Essentially, we have a sermon about a sermon this morning. I thought that was funny when I wrote that down. <laughs> if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter number 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. 2 Timothy Chapter number four, just to give you an opportunity to do a little call and response this morning. When you have it, just say amen. amen. Second Timothy chapter number four. And verse one declares, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So just for a, a few moments this morning, I want to preach uh, from the subject title, Don't Change the Play. Don't Change the Play. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active. And I thank you that any time we have an opportunity to gather together, God, we want to come under the authority of your word. God, I'm thankful that anytime we open up your word, you speak to us. God, it's amazing to me that we can see a passage and we can read it many, many times, but because of your spirit, God, you can speak a fresh word over our lives. God, so we ask very simply, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us clearly this morning because your servants are listening. God, thank you that these moments are not about uh, the preacher or not about the music. God, these moments are about a holy God who desires to speak to his people. Speak to us, Lord, because we need to hear from you this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you are a Georgia football fan, uh, the season of all seasons to remember is usually the 1980 national championship season. Side note, wouldn't it be great that we can start talking about the 2018 season because we won a championship. Just, just a plug. If you, got a, if you got a little extra prayer time, put that on your prayer list. But when you think about Georgia football, most fans often refer to 1980. What made the year special was not simply the stadium or the band or even the coaching staff. What made the 1980 season special was a freshman by the name of Herschel Walker. That season, UGA went 12-0 when they won the national championship. The most amazing thing about it was they won the national championship, and not only did they win the national championship, but they won the national championship, and everyone knew the play that they would run on offense. And everyone knew the player who would get the ball each and every play. They literally won the national championship in 1980, or the 1981 Sugar Bowl, only completing one pass the entire game. During the preparation to the game, uh, some, some journalist, maybe it was Andy Johnston back in the day, <laughs> some journalist asked Coach Dooley, why do you always run the same play? And Coach Dooley quickly responded, I run the same play because the play works. He says, I'm not going to change the play until the defense can stop the play. When I read 2 Timothy, it is a reminder that Paul is telling every minister of the gospel, please don't change the play. All of us are tempted 
uh, to call an audible every Sunday morning. I want to get up here and I want to share my thoughts. I want to share my opinions. But when you look at the scriptures, when you look at God's word, it is as if Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, my young brother in the faith, please do not change the play. When you think about uh, salvation history or biblical history, we see that God always operates by speaking a divine decree. In the book of Genesis, we see creation. Uh, when we see creation, uh, we see it is birthed from the word of God. Theologians uh, describe it as a creation ex nihilo. It is a creation out of nothing that God is so powerful. His word is so powerful that God can speak something. As God can have nothing and speak something and then we will have the world that we know today. In the New Testament, we not only see the power of God's creative word, we also see the power of God's incarnate word. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That passage is specifically speaking about how Christ is the incarnate word, that Christ is, is God's word in flesh. Jesus left heaven to dwell among us once again so that we could leave earth to dwell in heaven. And here in the, fourth, uh, in the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, we see the power of the written word, but also we see the power of the proclaimed word. Paul understood that life would get tough. He understood that Satan would attack, that people would struggle, that people would have fears. So Paul concluded that the best thing that I can tell this young minister of the gospel is to preach the word. He takes the time to remind young Timothy of the power of God's word, specifically the power of the proclaimed word of God. So this morning we want to go back to 2 Timothy chapter number 4. We're going to look at verse number 1 and we will see the audience of preaching. Verse 1 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. I love the, how the passage or how the chapter begins because uh, from the very outset, Paul reminds us who is present in the pews. Uh, each week as I prepare the message, I'm reminded that we need a message that will reach people at different stages of life. A message that will meet uh, those who are at different places in their walk with Christ. As I prepare, I'm wrestling with the question well, how will this truth or how will this illustration impact those who are married? But also, how will this impact those who are single, uh, those who have children and those who don't have children, uh, those with grown children, those with disabled children, uh, those with money in the bank, but those who have a ne negative balance in their account? The message that we preach each week must be a message that meets people where they are. And as I prepare each week, I need to consider who's in the audience, but I need to also remember the most important person in the audience. I can remember when I first uh, kind of got going in preaching, I was a student at Morehouse College, and after a few engagements, I was invited to share at the Martin Luther King International Chapel on campus. Uh, for those who don't, are not familiar with Morehouse, that is kind of a big deal to be asked to speak at the chapel. You have presidents, you have dignitaries, you have people uh, of great renown who are usually asked to speak. So for a student uh, to get asked was a really big deal. I, I remember initially I was 
a little overwhelmed with the opportunity, I began to think about my classmates who would be in the room, my family, my professors, maybe the university president, maybe uh, some visiting dignitary might be in the audience. The more I thought about it, the more nervous I got about who would be in the audience, but then I was encouraged because I was, I was convicted that ultimately God was going to be there. And my focus and my attention needed to be on an audience of one. I needed to focus on God because focusing on God would allow me to make pleasing God a greater priority than pleasing people. For those of us who stand, for those of us who preach, for those of us who share, the, the, the temptation is, I, I, I really want to impress people. I really want to leave, I really want people to leave here uh, impressed and awed by my, 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 my sermonic skills on Sunday. But the truth of the matter is, when God is pleased, no one else matters. In our text, Paul reminds us that as we approach every opportunity, we need to approach it knowing that God is present. When I'm preaching in the pulpit or having a devotional time at home, when I'm doing a chapel with a football team or a Bible study with a co-worker, we need to understand that God is present. Now, here's what's going to make us uncomfortable. Not only is God present, but the scriptures tell us that God is judging the living and the dead. All judgment is committed to Jesus. I know contemporarily we get very, very uncomfortable with that statement, judgment. Some of us have even said, you know, I'm not going to call anybody out on the left side of the room, on my left. But, but there's one person in particular I can remember a conversation with that person where they said, oh, my God, I feel like you're judging me. <laughs> Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. God is supreme, and ultimately, God is the one who judges us. We've got to remember that every one of us will be judged for eternity. We will be judged, number one, based upon whether or not we have accepted Christ, but then secondly, everything that we've done on this earth will be tested by fire. We will be judged based upon what we have accomplished for Christ. Judgment is a reality of every believer, and though we do not desire to be judged, the scriptures tell us that ultimately God is our judge. So since we see very clear in the scriptures that God is the judge, that should remove the tendency to impress people off my plate. If ultimately God is the one who judges me, then I need to understand it doesn't matter who on this earth judges me. It doesn't matter if folks don't invite you to the party. It doesn't matter if people don't like the post or the photo. It doesn't matter uh, who uh, calls you good or bad. The scriptures tell us that our accountability must come from God. In every sermon, uh, the accountability is we simply desire for God to be pleased. Here's what I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me as your pastor that when I stand here, that, that the well done I'm looking for, that that, that that well done only comes from God. That 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 the encouragement 
that I seek is not from people. It's great. I'm, I'm glad that y'all that I love me, you care for me, but ultimately, we've got to see that we, um, we are called to be judged by God. Now, here, here's the truth. This is a a pastoral epistle. Specifically, it is speaking to the reality of a pastor of a church, but the principle is true for anybody who's here today. The principle is true in that you and I need to be delivered from trying to please people. Just because you're not a preacher doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to you. Every one of us Every one of us should feel the weight. Every one of us should feel the reality that this is not just a good word for a pastor, but this is a good word for every single believer. Every one of us should get to a place in our lives where we are serving an audience of one, where we are living to get an applause from Christ, where we are looking to be celebrated by the one who saved us. It's amazing to me how we will go super far. We will bend over backwards. We will try to move heaven and earth to try to please people, but we don't have that same commitment and fervency in trying to please the Lord. So first we see the accountability of every sermon, but then secondly we see the authority of preaching, the authority that's found in the sermon. Verse 2 says, preach the word, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Uh, This past spring, I was invited to share a message over in Atlanta. And since I was driving, I decided to uh, take my son with me. The engagement went really well. And after I finished, my son uh, was in the backseat. And maybe he was just trying to get me to take him to Chick-fil-A or Zaxby's, but... He says, Dad, that was a really good speech. And in my heart, I'm like, that was no speech. It <laughs> was a sermon. That was God's word, bro. Like, I'm no speaker. I'm a preacher. <laughs> I, I, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the reality of it is every time we stand, we have the responsibility not to to come up with something new, right? Like, like I, I don't, some people are like, man, how do you come up with this stuff every week, man? You just find something new to preach on. How do you, how do, you do it, brother? And I'm like, I, I'm not coming up with anything. Like, when you look at, think about the Bible, God has come down with something. And since God has come down with something, I need to proclaim God's word. The truth is, I don't have to come up with something because what God has given us is so much better than anything that I could ever come up with. When you look at the text, uh, it is uh, the word preacher or preach the word is a reminder of the reality that we are to be a herald. We are to be proclaimers of the truth. If we are called to be heralds or proclaimers, the question that we got to ask ourselves, to what should we proclaim? Should what... What, what should each preacher come up with on Sunday? This is a good word for a lot of us because I, I get it that there are a lot of people in the room who will not be here for a long time. You're a student. You're just passing through here. So I want to help you be able to evaluate what is a healthy church when you leave here, okay? When you think about it, Paul's charge to Timothy was to preach the word. 
If we were to ask the question, what is he to preach? We got to go back to, the, to what Paul has already said. He says, you are to preach the word. Preaching is not merely a speech or an address on a religious topic. Preaching is not man's word about God. Preaching is God's word to man. And here's why we preach the word. We want to expose the truth of the word for the purpose of transformation. That's why, that's why expository preaching is in our mission statement. I want to say it again. When we preach, we want to expose the truth of God's word for the purpose of spiritual transformation. It's really the definition of expository preaching. We want to expose the truth, not that I imply the truth or insert the truth. I want to expose the truth that's already in the text. Uh, on some level, as a pastor, I am like a, a, a travel agent, okay? Each time I, I open up the word and each time I preach, I want us to take a journey into the text. And I want to exegetically escort you through the text. Uh, sometimes I want to be more cool. I want to be more relevant. I want to be more creative. Uh, even this morning, I, I, I thought about if I was in a traditional church setting, I would probably preach something like um, when the service won't end, and I would kind of draw principles from Aretha Franklin's funeral, right? <laughs> Seriously. I, I guarantee you there are pastors who have preached a whole sermon on, on, on a funeral that happened on Friday. If I was more of a young hip preacher, uh, maybe I would take a um, contemporary popular song like in my feelings. And instead of saying, Kiki, do you love me? I would say, Jesus, do you love me? And I would come up with some kind of really cool and creative dance that would entertain you on Sunday. The reality of it is, most of our preaching has turned into entertainment. There have been a lot of people, even uh, in, on, on the, the funeral that happened on Friday, they were so upset with the preacher who did the eulogy. I didn't even watch the, I didn't even watch the, the, the funeral. But here's the truth. While people were singing and people were being entertained, everything was cool. But the moment the preaching happened, everyone was offended. Because unfortunately, the, the, the travesty has, is that church has turned into entertainment. Church has turned into you come and hear the cool speaker who gives you a couple of catchy phrases and you leave and go on your way. You don't think about it. You don't wrestle with it. You're not challenged by it. And then next week you come to be entertained again. I'm not bashing churches. I'm, 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 I'm reminded that the conviction has to be that I need to expose our body to the text. I need to hear more from God than I hear from myself. Every time I preach, I hope to take you on a journey from what is happening today to what happened in the text so that the truth that is present in the text can be applied to our lives today. That is why we do what we do. That's why we systematically go through the scriptures. That's why we, after this series is over, I'm going to just pick another book, and each week I'm going to just walk through it because what is found in the text is far more powerful than anything I could come up with. I saw an article this past week 
uh, a group of um, retired um, vet, a group of retired folks um, in Japan where uh, the bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was dropped. Uh, they found some, some contemporary uh, radioactive material. So this group of uh, older folks, 60s and 70s, they made a decision to, to volunteer uh, to go and clean it up. In going to clean it up, they, they pretty much were accepting that they were going to be exposed uh, to something radioactive. And whatever they're exposed to, within 20 or 30 years, was going to probably kill them. So the older folks said, you know what? We don't want anybody in their late 20s or early 30s to be exposed uh, to this nuclear waste. They said, we want to we expose ourselves to it. I want to tell y'all something this morning. I want you to hear me very clearly. Every time I preach, I hope you are, I hope you are exposed to something that causes a part of your life to die. Say it again. Every time I preach, I pray that you are exposed to something that will cause an aspect of your life to die. I pray that every time I preach, our pride will be killed. Our selfishness will be killed. Our love for the world will be killed. Our acceptance of sin will be killed. Somebody here is probably saying, Pastor, that is, man, it's a little rough. We got a few visitors here today, bro. Like, you can't be a little more positive than that. <laughs> Why don't you go with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Passage says very clearly. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? When you think about that passage, let me, let me insert a little biblical interpretation for you. When the pastor says, take up his cross, it's saying, die. The cross was a place of death. The cross was a place, it, it was more than, than, than a fancy chain. It was a place where you went to die. Jesus is saying, the call to follow me is the call to die to yourself. So first, we see the accountability of preaching. Secondly, we see the authority of preaching, and then thirdly, we see the audacity of preaching. Verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In the text, Timothy, Timothy um, is reminded, or Timothy is given a preview of what we are experiencing today. He's, Paul says that there will be a time when people will not endure sound teaching. That's where we are today. He says that people will pick a preacher based upon what they are most passionate about. That's where we are today. He says people will wander off from the truth and believe a myth. That's where we are today. 
in the text, Paul tells Timothy that this will happen, but I love it because he takes it a step further and he says, this is going to happen, but here is the antidote to what will happen. Anybody who's been uh, to, a, to a doctor and who's had a wellness check, uh, the, the, usually they will do your labs and they will uh, run the report. They'll make you uh, give the blood work and then maybe a week later you'll go to the doctor. And in that, that visit, they will look at your numbers. They'll tell you what's good, what's bad. And then the doctor will go through it and systematically tell you, hey, here's what's about to happen if you don't change. Or here's what will, will continue to happen if you continue to do what you're doing, right? In the text, that's essentially what, what Paul is telling Timothy. He's saying, here's what's about to happen, and here's what you need to do to counteract what will one day happen. He says, number one, you must preach the word in season and out of season. That is, not when it's just convenient, but when it's inconvenient. You must reserve preaching not just when you feel like it, but for all times, when you're ready and when you're not ready, when people are applauding you and when they're not applauding you, when people are loving you, when they're not loving you. He says, you must preach the word. You must proclaim God's divine decrees no matter what people have to say about it. In the text, Paul gives three specific ways that we apply the preaching. He says we are to reprove, which means to correct, we are to rebuke, and we are to ex exhort, which means to encourage. In the church, correction is needed because we can be confused about what God has said. So many times we quote the world or false teaching more so than we quote the scriptures. So our teaching must have the element of correction because if we are not under the authority of the word, we will not know what God has told us to do. It's amazing to me how good-intentioned people can kind of pass on a lie. Pass on this lie. Like one, one, of the, one of the lies that is told is that God is angry with you, that God is upset with you, that God is in heaven, uh, kind of like the angry grandpa just waiting to strike you down. It's not the truth. If you look at the scriptures, if you look at biblical history, we shared this in our campus Bible study last week. If you look at just the Bible by itself, the first two chapters are about creation. The third chapter is about the fall. But the rest of the Bible is about redemption and restoration. If you, if you were to take your Bible and lift it up and look at it, two chapters about creation, one chapter about the fall, but the rest of the story is about God's love for you, God's desire for you, and God's plan for your life. Teaching corrects the myth that God is waiting to strike you down. Teaching corrects the myth that God is angry and upset with you and holding your sins against you. So first, we got to correct some things, but then secondly, we got to rebuke some things. Rebuking is not preaching at people, but it is directly speaking to the issues of life. Hebrews 4.12, it's on the screen, says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerning of the thoughts and attentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One of the reasons why I love to preach the scriptures is because the scriptures do the rebuking. That's why we go through a passage, because we go through the passage, because whatever comes up next is what we're going to discuss. It's not the preacher 
trying to do an agenda or trying to, uh, it's easy for you to think that, well, he just, he has an agenda. He's skipping around every week. He's kind of cherry picking the messages that he wants to deal with. But when we pick a book, we just go through it systematically because God's word does the rebuking. So we need correction. We need rebuking. But, but here's what probably what we need more of. We need the encouragement. We need the exhortation. We need to be reminded of how much God loves us. We need to be reminded of God's grace. So many times as preachers, we can try to make you feel guilty. We can try to guilt you into doing what's right. We can try to guilt you. We can point the finger at you and try to make you change. But the truth of the matter is, guilt never changed anybody, but grace does. The more we preach about the goodness of God and the grace of God, the more we will know we are loved by God. The more we are know, the more we will know we are protected by God, and pursued by God, and provided for by God. When we do this, it reminds us of what's true. I love the passage because Paul is at the end of his life, and as an older, wiser man, he's sharing some keys to success. Paul is reminded, or Paul reminded Timothy, that God's word will do the work. He's saying to him, Timothy, as, as a veteran, as a, as a person who was at the end of my ministry, I'm about to die, I've seen it all, I've done it all. He says, Timothy, please do not change the play. He says, please don't change the play because he understood that Satan cannot stop the play. When Paul was called to preach, it was God's word that brought confirmation. When Paul had to confront Peter, it was God's word that brought confidence. When Paul was shipwrecked in the book of Acts, it was God's word that brought comfort. And when Paul was getting ready to die, it was God's word that gave him courage. God's word is what we need for our soul's healing. God has blessed us with the privilege to have his word. Now, here's the the truth about God's word. God has given us his word, but we've got to consent to allowing the word to do its work. I'll I'll close with this illustration. Anytime you go to a doctor to have surgery, uh, you have to sign a consent form. If you do not sign that consent form, they cannot do the surgery. It could be an easy surgery. It could be a major surgery. We were with Dan Dallas. We went over before he had his procedure. Jake and I went, and it, it, it never fails. As we were in the, well, we were in the, the prep room, the, the folks came and said, hey, before we can do the surgery, brother, you got to sign here. If he did not sign, if he didn't consent to them doing the work, he would still have the issues in his heart. But because he understood, he believed that, that what he needed most was the heart surgery, he says, I'm going to consent. I'm going to sign my rights away so that they can do the work that is needed. That's what must happen with God's word. We've got to consent. We've got to surrender. We've got to get to a place in our lives where we say, Lord, I know you can do the work that I needs to be done. So man, come, come back up. I'm going to pray for us will be dismissed today. God, thank you so much.